the deep end. The deep end was where his older brothers would swim. And though he was too young and he couldn't even doggy paddle, he longed to be there with them. So his dad, his dad would tread water near the edge of the pool where the little boy would jump in and be safely caught each and every time. Swimming like this in the deep end made him feel like he was one of the big kids. His dad would keep hold of him and they would swim around together, ending up back at the edge of the pool where the little boy would get out and jump right back in again and again. But after some time, he began to feel self-confident, thinking that this swimming stuff was now a part of his ever-widening skill set. So when his dad was not looking, the boy jumped in all on his own. And with no one to catch him, and without the ability to swim, he sunk down into the water. And for the first time, he was not brought back up again. Thankfully, he was quickly noticed by his dad, who rescued him and gave him a compelling account of his foolishness. Well, at the first, the boy's confidence was only in the one who caught him. But soon, his confidence was in his own supposed abilities. Well, happily, it wasn't too much longer before I learned to swim for myself. But this stands as an early example of my own life where I learned the hard way that my self-confidence is often misplaced. That often I think that I can, when in reality, I cannot. Self-confidence is the antithesis of the Christian life. Because the Christian life is embodied by these words from Jesus in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. My friends, if Jesus is new to you today, and I suspect he may be, if he is new to you today, understand this, you can only come to Jesus with empty hands. You can only come to Jesus with hands that are empty, stating in your mind and heart, I have nothing to bring, nothing I've done, no good thing. Only empty hands and say, Jesus, I have nothing. I've sinned, I've wronged, you've done everything. Receive me as one of your children. Only with empty hands can we come to Jesus. No other religion is like Christianity in that no other religion requires both an utter distrust of oneself along with an unqualified confidence in a saving God. Many of us have heard from our earliest days that if we just believe in ourselves, if we think we can, we will be able to overcome the greatest obstacles and achieve even the highest of goals. And though we must generally be in favor of personal responsibility and human initiative when it comes to our dealings with others, to actually think that we can accomplish anything of lasting, eternal value apart from Jesus Christ is just utter nonsense. Because Christians are a God-dependent people. Because apart from him, they can do nothing. But Jesus talks about moving mountains in verse 20. So how do we reconcile 
this. It seems so absurd to think that we could actually do this. Actually move a mountain. Do you know what else seems absurd to me? The thought of overcoming my deepest and greatest sinful tendencies. The ones which have been thorns of temptation in my life for years. Do you know what else seems absurd to me? The thought of bearing up under the weight of great suffering and uncertainty when it surprises me, hurts me, and endures in my life. Do you know what else seems absurd to me? The thought of being able to preach in such a way that the hearts and lives of the people of Riverside would actually be transformed. Do you know what else seems absurd to me? The thought of reaching my neighbors across the street with the gospel of God when they already have so many other little gods that they worship. But in spite of all of this absurdity, the size of these enormous mountains, guess what is still shockingly true? That little boy in the pool still has not fully learned his lesson because he still often thinks that he can do what he most certainly cannot. So how are we to move such mountains of the heart? Well, the answer is by looking with con confidence to the right object for confidence, by living with faith in the appropriate person for faith. Rather than looking to ourselves and to our own supposed abilities, looking to the one with certain ability, rejecting self-trust by demonstrating trust in Christ the Lord. My friends, we are only mountain-moving people if we have mountain-moving faith in a mountain-moving God. So let's take four reflections from this passage with regard to faith. Number one, I want us to observe the mountain. Number two, I want us to acknowledge the weakness. Number two, I want us to consider the mountain-mover. And number four, I want us to ponder the possibilities. So our first reflection this morning, observe the mountain. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. Now Jesus has just come back down from the Mount of Transfiguration. In verses 1 through 13, if you were here last week, you were there for this. Jesus took with him three of his disciples, Peter and James and John, up a high mountain where his appearance was gloriously transformed before them, where he met with two great Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, and where the voice of God the Father in heaven boomed, commanding Peter, James, and John to listen to his son. The voice was commanding, put all your focus upon him. He's my pleasure. He's my beloved. He's my son. You listen to him. And now the contrast between this and our passage this morning 
could not be more glaring in my mind. Back in verse 2, Jesus reveals a measure of his heavenly glory right before his very own disciples. And in verse 16, his disciples are weak. In verse 5, the Father God in heaven commands the disciples to keep constant attention upon his beloved Son. And in verse 17, Christ's disciples are faithless. So Jesus, who is always teaching, had more teaching to do. And upon finding the rest of the disciples, he encountered a man with an unimaginably hard problem. This man's boy, of an uncertain age, he had an agonizing life. He had seizures, which caused such terrible suffering in that these convulsions caused him to actually fall into both fire and water. Think of the danger of that. The Gospel of Mark's account of this story tells us even more about what this family was facing. Mark 9, verse 17 says, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And Jesus asked his father in verse 21, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood... And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. So this boy's life was under the control of an evil spirit, a demon, who would seize control of the boy, remove his ability to communicate, fling him to the ground, cause him to foam at the mouth and grind his teeth, and which sought to kill him by leading him towards both fire to burn him and water to drown him. And in verse 15 of Matthew 17, the father said that this happened to his son often. So this was an ongoing agony. Now, I can only imagine what what life must have been like for this boy. And as a dad, I greatly sympathize with this father. What must life have been like for this whole family? So scary, so painful, and so hopeless. And if he were my son, I would search under every rock to find help. And this desperate search brought this man to Jesus for mercy. So what is this great mountain? Well, the lives of a boy in agony and a father in hopelessness who found no help from the powers of men. This is a height that far surpasses a hundred Everests. This exceeds any conceivable mountain And I don't need to press too much into Christ's metaphor in verse 20 regarding mountains. I know he's using hyperbole here, but that really doesn't matter. Because do you know what's just as impossible as moving a mountain from one place to another? Having the ability to say to a demonic spirit who far surpasses us in power, leave this little boy and never hurt him again and actually have that demon obey. My friends, not only can I not move any physical mountains, I also cannot do that, and neither can you. And that leads to our second reflection. Acknowledge the weakness. Verse 16. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. The disciples disciples could not do 
what they had already done. They could not heal him, verse 16 says. Literally, they were not capable. They did not have the ability at that time to heal this boy. This boy's need was very real. His father's desperation was very real. And though it appears they tried, the disciples' inability was also very real. But what's extraordinary here is that previously they indeed had this ability even to cast out demons. Because if you think back to chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel, it says in verse 1 that Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. A few verses later, verse 8, Jesus told them, he commanded them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And we know they did this because in Luke chapter 9, verse 6, it says they departed, they went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So previously, the disciples had used their Jesus-given abilities to heal people and even cast out demons. So what gives? Why now are they not able to help this boy and his dad? Again, this boy's need was very real. His father's desperation was very real, but the disciples' inability was very real. So why could they not perform their ministry? Well, the reason for their inability is given by Jesus in verse 17. Though he may have also had other people in mind with these harsh words, as both Matthew and excuse me, both Mark and Luke's accounts seem to suggest, he certainly here had his disciples at the forefront of this rebuke because he uses similar language when he addresses them privately in verse 19. He talks about their lack of faith here in verse 17. He talks about their lack of faith again in verse 19. In verse 17, he calls them a faithless and twisted generation. Faithless means they were unbelieving. Rather than trusting in the strength of Jesus with both personal humility and full confidence in his ability to empower their ministry, they misplaced their trust. As one commentator notes, the disciples had likely begun to look at their ministry as mechanical, being dependent on their own ability instead of on God. They've been doing the same kind of ministry for a while. They've been going about this ministry for quite a bit. And now they're going about this ministry just assuming that everything's going to keep on keeping on, that the machine is going to keep on working. Miracles are going to keep happening through them. Yet it doesn't. And this reminds us, I think, of what happened to Peter when he lost sight of the object of his faith back in chapter 14, where it says that while Jesus was walking on the water, Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. At first, dependence upon Jesus and then he looked around, and he began to lose sight of Jesus, which caused him to sink. And the word twisted here in verse 17 reveals just how serious this faithlessness was in Jesus' mind. The Greek word behind twisted refers to a departure from an accepted standard. 
It is to no longer follow the straight and proper path which God has laid out, but instead to veer off into a crooked direction. The Apostle Paul, he uses this word to rebuke the man Elemus, a practitioner of witchcraft, witchcraft in Acts chapter 13, verse 10, when he said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Paul also wrote later to Christians, urging them with, to stand in their lives with distinction amidst this twisted world. He says in Philippians 2, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So this twistedness is not to be what marks Christians, what marks disciples of Jesus Christ. So the disciples, in their apparent self-confidence, had departed from the only standard that God accepts. The only straight and proper path, which is reliance upon his son. So why could the disciples not move this mountain? Why could they not heal this hurting boy and relieve this dad? Well, it was because of their self-confidence, which replaced their Christ confidence. The disciples were weak, evidently because they thought they were strong. And listen to what Jesus would later say to the Apostle Paul. The same one who wrote of being twisted. Jesus said to him in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. How does Christ's power get made perfect in the lives of his disciples? Through their weakness. And how did Paul wisely respond? It says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My friends, when you look inside of you and you don't see strength, but weakness, when you look around your church and you don't see strength, but you see weakness, understand that's great ground for God to do some impossible things. Because when we are weak, oh, he is strong. This leads to our third reflection. Consider the mountain mover. Verse 18. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Jesus spoke with his authoritative word once again. He rebuked the demon. He spoke some word of sharp clarity to this evil being, and then two things happened. Number one, the demon came out of the boy. And number two, the boy was healed instantly or at that very hour. In other words, my friends, the mountain was moved. Now consider the lengths that Matthew has already gone to show us the authoritative power of the word of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 8, verse 26. Jesus said to his disciples that when they were afraid because of the violent waves crashing against their boat... Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. They're afraid, Jesus says to the winds and the sea, stop, and they stopped. Chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus said to his doubters, But you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arise and went home. Jesus has authority to say to a man who can't walk, get up and walk. Just as he has authority to say to a sinner who's dead in his transgressions and sins, you be alive. You be alive. You be regenerated. You come back and put your faith in me. Jesus speaks and it happens and people are forgiven. Matthew 14, verse 31, when Peter was upon the water and was beginning to sink, Jesus immediately, he reached out his hand and he took hold of him and he said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then Peter was rescued. So Jesus has been using his authoritative voice to show his awesome power again and again in this gospel. And now his authoritative word is again on display, this time in stark contrast to his disciples' utter impotence. They could not heal a boy. They could not cast out a demon. And they could not bring relief. But Jesus could. They could not accomplish anything of lasting, eternal value on their own. But boy, he sure could. But understand, the greater mountain was yet to be moved. As extraordinary as that was, something greater still was yet to happen. Verses 22 and 23 say that as they were gathering in Galilee, so this is sometime later, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. The greatest mountain before these disciples was their own need for atonement. To have Jesus die in order to pay the penalty for their own wickedness and to make possible for them to have a blessed fellowship with their creator God. That is their greatest challenge. That is their greatest problem. That is their most insurmountable mountain. The disciples' greatest problem, Peter, James, and John, and all the rest, was the fact that their sin caused a barrier between them and their God. And that the only way that barrier could be overcome and they could again be restored to blessed fellowship with their God is if God himself would send his only son, who is God himself, who would go to a tree, shed his blood, die on that tree, go to a grave, and then seal our pardon by rising up again. The only way for that mountain to be moved was for the Son of God to die. And that's precisely what he did. The only way for this great challenge to be removed from these disciples' lives was for Christ to be raised from the dead. And that is precisely what he did. Well, my friends, the greatest mountain in your own life, whether you recognize it or not, is your sin which sits as a barrier between you and the holy God who created you for his glory. He can't stand your sin. It is utterly offensive and evil to his holy, perfect nature. And he is just to judge you for all eternity, separated from his presence in hell. But marking his justice, he also declares his love and goodness by sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and bore your punishment upon himself. So that all who call upon him in faith, saying, yes, Jesus, I accept your substitution, your going to the cross in my place, your payment for my sin, I accept that, Jesus, 
all who accept him, all their sins are forever removed. And that chasm, that chasm is forever taken away. And fellowship with God is eternally restored. This is the greatest mountain. And it is a mountain that can only be removed by the sacrifice of this son. So Jesus accomplishes what we cannot accomplishment, accomplish. His accomplishment on the cross, it makes us right with God. And it is for us to acknowledge that our hands are empty before him and to receive Jesus simply by putting our faith in him. He also accomplishes a mighty work of ministry through the lives of his people, through the power that he alone supplies. This mountain mover, he doesn't just move the mountain of our sin and separation from God. He also sends his spirit who ignites us, who empowers us, who shapes us and fashions us and uses us to actually go about the task of mountain moving. He doesn't just take away our mountain. He brings us on board and says, all right, through me now, you're going to be mountain movers. What an extraordinary God. And this leads to our fourth reflection. Ponder the possibilities. Verses 19 and 20. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Now the question asked here is a crucial one. Why, Jesus? Before you gave us power to cast out demons and to heal people, so why could we not help this boy? We know you want us to take part in your kingdom ministry. You've told us that. So why couldn't we do what we'd been doing before? Why did you have to arrive on the scene to help this hurting family? You see, this question is crucial because its answer is life transforming. In fact, if you miss this, I dare say you miss the entirety of the Christian life. The answer given for their failure is simple and yet so incredibly easy to forget. They could not perform their ministry calling because they sought to perform their ministry apart from the one who called them. They could not perform their ministry calling because they sought to perform their ministry apart from the one who called them. In other words, they went about their ministry with self-confidence rather than with Christ-confidence. Instead of doubting themselves, they doubted Jesus. Oh, they likely would never have ever admitted that they doubted Jesus, but their actions speak for themselves. If they'd have had confidence in the God of power, then they would have performed the power of God. Not as a magic show to tickle their own egos, but as a demonstration of how God can work through a humbled believer when he chooses to empower that believer. And imagine the sting of those words from their precious Lord. Because of your little faith. Why could we not cast out the demon? 
Well, Jesus says so matter-of-factly, because of your little faith. Let's tweak their question just a little that they asked our Lord. Why can we not overcome our deepest and greatest sinful tendencies, the ones which have been thorns of temptation in our lives for years? Jesus says, because of your little faith. Why do we not bear up under the weight of great suffering and uncertainty when it surprises us, hurts us, and endures in our lives? Jesus says, because of your little faith. Why are we not able to see transformation in the hearts and lives of the people around us? Jesus says, because of your little faith. And why are we not able to reach our neighbors whom God has put right around us with the gospel of God? Because of your little faith. Jesus keeps teaching the same lesson to his disciples then and now over and over again because they and we still struggle to learn the main thing that it is all through faith in him. Yes, we have a job to do, but it's only a worthy job if it's an empowered job. Matthew 6, verse 30, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Chapter 8, verse 26, He said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus immediately, he reached out his hand, he took hold of Peter, and he said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Matthew 16, verse 8, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you have no bread? Clothing, food, storms, trials, ministry, life, death, why are you so afraid, O oh, you of little faith? And look how Jesus further describes what is necessary in verse 20. He says, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed. Now you perhaps have heard of the mustard seed, that it was very well known for being a very small seed. So even if you have small faith, if it's a real faith, it will be a powerful faith. Because what's important, my friends, is not the measure of faith, but the right object of faith. The disciples could have bushels of faith, but if that faith is in themselves, it counts for nothing. But if the disciples have a tiny measure of faith, if it's in Jesus, it will account for everything. David Platt writes, a little bit of faith in a great God can accomplish great things. And so Jesus says here in verse 20, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Oh, fellow believers in Jesus, imagine the possibilities of having nothing impossible for us. Imagine that in this room sparsely populated. Imagine the possibilities of having nothing impossible 
for us. Jesus, God himself, I'm convinced, says in God's word, I'm convinced, nothing will be impossible for you. If our faith is in the right object and for the right reasons, then no good accomplishment is beyond our reach. So just think of what God can do through us. Now, this does not mean that we can seek things which are contrary to the moral will of God and expect to receive them. The Apostle James writes in James 4, verse 3, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You're asking for things only to placate your own lusts. You do it to bring yourself the sinful pleasure which is distinct from the pleasure of God. You want to spend it on your passions so you don't get what you're asking for. Nor does this mean that God's answer will always conform to our idea of what is good for us. My kids ask me for things all the time. I like to give them things, but there's sometimes that I know best, and I know they need something else. Well, Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, says, To keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, meaning Paul had seen visions of Christ. He had communed with him in some special spiritual way. And to keep him from becoming conceited or prideful over the surpassing greatness of his revelations, it says a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now catch this. He says three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Lord, take away this painful trial. But verse 9 says, the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So it does not mean that God's answer will always conform to our idea, our feeble idea of what is good for us. But this does mean that when we ask, even for extraordinary things, mountain-moving things, if it is in conformity to the perfect will of God, He will do it. Chapter 21, verse 22 of Matthew's Gospel. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. That's what Jesus says. If you have faith, if you ask for it in prayer, you will receive. If your trust is in me, if you're, if, you're, if you're desiring the glory of my name, if you're seeking my will, you're clinging to me for hope, you ask, my friends, you're going to receive. It doesn't always happen exactly as you think it's going to happen, but I'm going to give you incredible gifts, incredible blessings. Sometimes they'll be easy, sometimes they'll be hard. But what they're going to do is they're going to build and shape and transform you and other people. Through Jesus, nothing will be impossible for us. My friends, we will be mountain-moving people if we have mountain-moving faith in a mountain-moving God. So I have a question for you. What are we doing if we are not praying? What are you really doing 
in your life, in our church life, in your families around the dinner table, that those opportunities you have for family worship that are neglected and the opportunities you have for personal time with God that's neglected, what are we doing if we are not praying? Faith in the right object demonstrated by prayer in the right direction transforms the impossible into the possible. If that's the case, if Jesus is honest, and I hope, friend, you'll say that he is. If that's the case, if Jesus is honest, then let me ask, what could ever be more crucial than faithfully going to him and asking him to move mountains? My friends, what's necessary in your life is actually not more self-exertion. In fact, you probably need less of it. Your calendar needs to be more empty. I'm fairly confident of that in my years of studying God's word and just learning of how he works in my own life. You probably need to have less going on, less self-exertion. No, what's really necessary in your life is that you actually begin to pray. Actually begin to pray with faith in Jesus. And not merely for small things, mountain-moving things, dead sinners awakened, marriages restored, heart transformations, prodigals returned, mastery over temptations, and revival in this place. So here is my action item for you today before we go to the Lord's table. This afternoon, or this evening, or tomorrow morning, pick up your Bible, and you read a portion of it, perhaps just a small portion, so that you can really chew on it, really think about it, and then ask the Lord to help you understand it and connect it to your own life situation. Then, seek out something that's powerful in that text. A promise to Christians, a characteristic of God, a conviction of sin, a charge or a command, and then pour out your heart to God in prayer, asking in Jesus' name that he apply that to your life, that truth to your life and your family and this church and our mission field, both near and far. Then, in faith, go even further and ask him for really big things. Things which you know from the Bible that he wants to see in his people. He wants to see in this community, but they just seem really big. Oh, Lord, I'll ask for some things. But that, you want me to ask for that? That seems too big. Ask him to move mountains. And then... The next day, repeat. Let us be a people who are a mountain-moving people because we put constant, prayerful faith in our mountain-moving God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we're so thankful that you have given us Jesus. First, Lord, we're so thankful that you've redeemed us You've given us your son who has purchased us, Lord, who has atoned for our sins, who's brought us into fellowship with you.
Through the gospel of your son Jesus, Lord, we are restored and we are so grateful. And Lord, I ask that if there be some here today who have never called upon Jesus in faith, that Lord, today would be the day they would reach out a fellow believer and they would say, I need to understand this thing. I need to know what it is to have my sins forgiven and to be right with God. Lord, we thank you and we also ask you to do that. And then, Lord, we thank you that you have not left your people on your own. But, Lord, you have given us the ability through your Son to actually bring about a work of transformation in our lives and in the lives of other people. Oh, Lord, help us to remember that it is all by looking to your Son. Help us to be quick in prayer. Help us to be devoted to it. Help us to make sacrifices so that it can happen. Let us prioritize it above much else in our life. We pray that you would help us now, Lord, as we also begin to turn towards this table. Lord, it is a happy, though somber reflection of what your son accomplished for us. I pray that the hearts of your people, Lord, would be ready together to fellowship with him as we commune together around this table. And we pray this in Jesus' name. memorial commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ to be eaten in his spiritual presence. And when we do it, we do so solemnly yet joyfully in remembrance of our Lord. And we invite you today to partake of this table if, first of all, you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, having repented of your sins before God and having placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And we invite you to participate in this table today if you are a baptized member in good standing in a local church, such as Riverside or another gospel-loving congregation. And we invite you to participate in this table if you are at peace in your relationships with other Christians, having done all in your power to promote love and reconciliation with them. If this is not the case, the Bible gives warnings of taking of this table in an unworthy manner. So we encourage you to simply observe today as we partake of this table together. Our deacons are here. I'm going to ask them to stand and we'll pray over uh, the bread, which symbolizes the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then while they're passing out the elements, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to sing a couple of verses, I think, of a hymn. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the juice. And then as those are being passed out, we're going to sing a couple of more verses about what Christ has shed, done through shedding of his blood. So, the bread, let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus Christ was willing to come and bear the sacrifice for us. We thank you that he took on flesh, Lord, and that, Lord, he was willing to live the hard Christian life, and that, Lord, he did so sinlessly. And we rejoice that he was willing to lay down his life, Lord, having his body broken and killed for us. Help us, Lord, to remember him properly now, reflecting upon the goodness that is demonstrated to us through Christ our Savior. We pray all this.